This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenarios before and after. Porkila Hellenistica. Classic movie faces. And saving Grover Cleveland's mustache. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game, without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, hey, maybe we don't have any miniatures. Maybe we don't have any graph paper. Maybe we don't even have a scenario. All we got is dice and chips and Peter Frampton. What kind of crazy hippie talk are we doing, Robin? We're talking improv, baby. Making it up as you go. Fall in, roll the dice, and see who gets stabbed at the other end. Even more specifically, yeah. we're talking about the process of writing scenarios for publication and whether you go from uh, writing it and then testing it with your group or improving it up and then turning it from your uh, point form notes and all the things your players did and didn't do into a published adventure because I've had the contrasting experience with the Yellow King role-playing game in that the uh, first uh, few scenarios uh, in the there's four settings uh, that are all intertwined as part of the Yellow King role-playing game and the first three of them I just ran from point form notes and then wrote up as the adventures uh, that appear in each of the four or each of the first three books but the uh, playtest uh, in-house has not yet reached the uh, final book this is normal now the quasi regular world modern day uh, horror and so that one I uh, did what I more typically do and wrote the uh, scenario uh and then we'll run it uh, from my fully written scenario notes, uh, just as uh, as you will at home, kids, when you finally get to that one. And so it's an interesting contrast in uh, going from the uh, improv state to a published adventure versus uh, the more, I think, standard published adventure into uh, 
and then running it. So, Ken, do, do you have experience on um, on both of those processes? Why, yes, I do. I have um, uh, written scenarios and then run them in playtest, and I also wrote uh, Sentries, the opening scenario in uh, Knights Black Agents, from the actual alpha playtest. That was the uh, intro scenario for my alpha playtest as I ran it, well, mostly as I ran it, um, and uh, that is, uh, exactly what I did. I sort of, I knew all of the sort of elements that were going to go into it. I knew that they were going to come out, uh, aware that something was sketchy and vampire And, uh, I sort of just played around with it and uh, threw things at the players. And a lot of their bat backs are what created the, uh, if your players do this parts of sentries. Um, so what are the, the, uh, the pros of this? I, I guess, first of all, the starting from an improv and going to a published scenario, one of the advantages is that you have experience of what choices the players will likely make. So if they want to go and investigate something that hadn't occurred to you, you don't have to then add in that element once you get the playtest feedback uh, from uh, out-of-house groups or you see it in play. But rather, you kind of know where people are going and, and can do that ahead of time. Or rather, uh, you can save your out-of-house playtesters a lot of a grief by making sure that you have kind of the obvious choices covered. And if your playtesters, for example, really, really strongly go to Belgrade instead of Beirut, even though you'd left directions in to both in the scenario, uh, you don't have to write up Beirut uh, when you publish it because you can just leave out the indication and then suddenly you've got a more uh, organically connected scenario. Also, uh, I did find myself when taking the improv adventures, editing out sort of sidetracks that uh, when I improv them, I try to use them to move people back into the uh, the core mystery. But even so, there were some of the directions that they went in. Uh, as I does, wrote up the adventure, I went, well, I don't necessarily have to write up this guy that they decided to go uh, look at, because obviously the problem with any published scenario is you can't possibly account for every choice the players are going to make. And it shouldn't be a hundred thousand words long. Yeah. It's going to be result in two hours of play or, you know, eight hours of play or whatever. You can't stat out every NPC the players might decide to talk to because first of all, no one could run from that. And second of all, um, you couldn't actually even get it right because no sooner had you statted out the 150th person in the, uh, Balkan arms smuggling, uh, uh, environment, then they say, Hey, I'm going to get on a jet and fly to Stockholm and talk to, um, uh, the expert at the UN who's in charge of arms smuggling. And you're like, Oh, all right, fine. Right. And implicit in any published scenario, although possibly explicit in every published scenario, it's a thing that maybe we should say again and again is that of course, your players are going to go in unexpected directions, and in an investigative scenario like we're talking about here, you can take the same information and put it in the mouths of whoever they do decide to go and talk to, even if it's someone that you have to, as GM, make up on the spot. I did find also, though, that as I was writing up some of the uh, scenarios, that I had to go, wait a minute, how did they make that leap? <laughs> how, how did they find this guy here? And it, it, there's the challenge of memory in that they may find a way to connect scenes that you would not have, would not have occurred to you if you were just writing it up uh, but you have to then be able to remember how they did that and so again that's an example where i did find myself sort of editing the leaps to make them clearer 
because although it's super cool if somebody makes a, a crazy intuitive leap and goes from uh, you know A to uh, Q instead of A to B, you still have to have uh, the most explicable a root or roots between the scenes as part of a published scenario. Um, ideally, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that you have to be able to sort of, I guess, uh, expect and roll with is player tactics. There's um, a degree to which we have, as scenario designers, a notion, well, obviously they will do X or Y or Z. And it's, I think, very useful, both as a designer and when you write it physically down, to say... The goal is to get the characters, uh, is to get the characters this item of information. Maybe they have to steal a goblet. Maybe they have to, um, do a thing. If the scenario is about doing a thing, whether it's a heist or it's about a, you know, any other sort of series of obstacles they have to make their way through with, uh, a bunch of, uh, general tests in Gumshoe, you can't map out every method that the players might use to do it any more than you can map out every NPC they might talk to to get a clue. So you have to provide uh, more of the, here is the things around the goblet, if they're stealing a goblet, here are the uh, precautions that are taken, and then maybe you list a bunch of impressionistic notions about how the player characters can steal the goblet, because even if you've figured out from endless watching of Rafifi that they should go into the building next door and they should wait around and be totally silent and creep across the ceiling and drill a hole and climb down on, on uh, repelling ropes and get the goblet. The players are like, we're going to tuddle in through the basement or we're going to blow the doors open and grab it in a snatch and grab, or we're going to disguise ourselves as the guards and infiltrate over a period of a week or any number of other things that because they are also exciting and cool should be workable because the player characters by definition are uh, better than the security around the goblet or else you wouldn't be saying steal the goblet as a scenario. You'd be saying, you know, uh, the scenario is not about that. It's about, you know, killing the guard on the goblet or something. Another great thing that you can do if you improvise first is take the cool spontaneous moments that arise during play that you didn't expect and help to program them in. Yeah. So, I guess I don't want to describe in detail what this example was, uh, but uh, rethinking this whole premise, are we? Yeah, let's say uh, that instead uh, it is the classic horror movie situation where there's a, a fake jump scare and it's a cat. Uh, so this is not the example in the published scenario because great example, but terrible cliche if I actually published it. Um, but the players um, interacted with something in the environment that, they were suddenly totally creeped out by something that I thought was a, a just sort of a, a description of a something kind of quotidian. And, you know, oh, well, we'll have to have a composure role for this. And then I, and it's like, oh, wow, this is a really, uh, and that not only inspired me to build that moment into the scenario, because I think other players will also react to that detail in that same way, but even to create a new, uh, pair of shock cards and the composure role to go with them because up until that point i hadn't had a false alarm that turns out to be nothing uh composure test with the with the cards that go with it and right. so uh, that uh, provided an example not only of something that could be built into the adventure but built more into the system that other gms will then be able to take and use you know for their own sort of false alarm jump scare situations the um other thing that you can wind up uh, drawing from it is notions of 
you know, uh, uh, antagonist uh, scenes or reaction scenes, because in the moment you as the GM are thinking creatively and saying, oh, it would obviously be that they, you know, send their wizard eye to go spy on them and then, you know, rain down fireballs or they would obviously, you know, have already infiltrated the, the police office and be able to get information about the investigation that way. Well, once you've thought of that being obvious, you can then go and backstop and write it into the scenario and say, if you're in the police precinct uh, and you spend a little point of um, uh, of notice, you might notice that one of the guys in the back of the room seems to be paying more attention to your uh, ordinary activities than the other cops are. Or you might notice some other indication that maybe the bad guys have got uh, an eye on the police. And in a standard GM t- technique, you often hear what the players are worried about and either decide to make that happen or find a way to allay their fears. Uh, ah, I, I suppose one could do that second thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the reason you sometimes do that is that they are hunkering down into a defensive crouch and spending, you know, let's spend a half an hour planning against this eventuality that you just don't consider that interesting and a waste of time. And even if they do overcome it, it won't be particularly exciting if they do. So let's just make clear to them that, you know, this fortress is not nearly as well defended as you think it is because it's much more interesting for you to try to get into the fortress than for you to uh, keep pacing around outside, coming up with reasons why you can't get in. Right. Right. And so uh, depending on what it is that they're worried about, you can either a find a way to activate that and make it super interesting. Like if, you know, they are concerned about the wizard eye right up a little bit about, yes, indeed, a wizard eye appears and here's how they can get rid of it and feel a sense of triumph over it. Or here's the, you know, the occultism bit of info or span that can, uh, you know, oh, well, they can't possibly get a, a wizard eye in here because the, the molding, the crown molding is, uh, is cedar. And of course, we all know that wizard eyes and cedar don't get along. Right. That, uh, and that gives you another bit of information that even if you didn't think of it ahead of time, the player characters then start riffing on your riff and you've built out another little piece of the universe that has to feel real or else the game doesn't work. And adding more bits of the universe that feel real is kind of your job as the scenario designer, both at the table and in print. So you then have a little background to the uh, building with the crown moldings that are coincidentally made of cedar, almost as though a hundred years ago, someone was also fighting the same bad thing. Right. And uh, one of the tests then is to take the things that the players come up with and build into uh, the adventure as you improv it and determine the likelihood that other groups will do this, right? Is this thing that you're doing specific to one character's drive or their the worst memory that they specified when they created the character? Or is it something that you consider something that, you know, everybody who's this type of player is going to do this? And so that everyone's going to try and talk to the swimming instructor just because, uh, she's an interesting character. Um, and, uh, has, you know, if you're the sort of, uh, uh, dramatic role-playing person, you're like, Oh, I'm going to find out her internal pain. Or if you're the, uh, you know, power game type player, you'll be like, Oh, well she can swim out into the uh, ocean and find out if there's deep ones and we won't have to, whatever it is. Right. Whereas, you know, only Josie would think, to uh, drive down the road and talk to ask where the nearest candy store is and ask the candy store clerk because, you know, she's built into her character that she's a secret sugar fiend. And although you found a way to, you know, get that into part of the storyline, nobody else is going to do that. Right. So you yeah. don't need to, to write that up. 
or, or you know, any other sort of element that is driven by character subplots and so forth. Or by player and, idiosyncrasy. Right. <laughs> now, that can be a bit, of a bit of a challenge if the way that you ran it, an idiosyncratic thing is what made the story forward, but you can't rely on the any other group of players to do that, so you're going to have to then build in a more uh, typical way, uh, as I suggested earlier, of getting from A to B or A to C. Um, now, I guess the the standard way of just writing up an adventure and then playtesting it, that doesn't give you the avenues to build in the, the unexpected moments and try and replicate them for other people. And that yeah. can be uh, for good or ill, right? Because it may right. well be that if you don't include the equivalent of the cat jump scare, that that'll leave the GM room to come up with their own cool thing that is unique to them. And you always have to be aware of the fact that you know, other GMs are going to go in other directions. And the, I guess the drawback of uh, the improv to, to print thing is the temptation to bend over backwards to get other people to replicate exactly what your players did is, uh, you know, even though it's based on somebody's set of choices, it's not based on the set of choices that other players will take at the table. So or maybe not can, even the optimal set that yes. you're in, th- in theory trying to encourage people to take. Right. So you can sort of backwards your way into kind of railroading people to have the same fun that your group had. So you have to, uh, you know, evaluate whether that's possible. And in a uh, written scenario that you've written ahead of time and then are running, you just sort of have the the standard issues of have you uh, thought far enough in advance of what everybody's going to do in order to include it in your adventure. And also there's uh, the standard problems uh, that only out-of-house groups testing a scenario can help you with because you can write a little throwaway reference that uh, other groups will overinterpret, like other GMs will overinterpret and cause problems, where, of course, it would never occur to you to cause that problem, and you don't realize until you get the report back that that's what's happened. But that is, in fairness, why you're running it from your uh, written outline, is to identify places of extra coolness or places, not just problems with the scenario as written, but also opportunities with the scenario as written, uh, because that's one of the things that you're selling the scenario, not just to the publisher, but to other future players of it is this scenario offers moments of coolness that other scenarios don't. And whatever those moments might be a signature fight, a signature NPC, a signature piece of information, whatever that those moments are, that's something you can only get in this scenario and you can't get in the next two scenarios over and keeping your eye out for that when you're running it is part of why I think that you're running it ahead of time to begin with, as opposed to, oh, I forgot to put a clue that lets them get the goblet at all. They just f- ignored it. I'd better write that into the next version of the scenario. In theory, once you've written, you know, three or four of these, you don't make that mistake. You're not running to discover that there's a crippling flaw with your scenario. You're running to discover what about your scenario, you know, seemed louder in play than you thought it would uh, when you were writing it. Right. And it's, it, and, and either way, I, I think that another risk is that if you improv it and then publish it uh, and you don't run it past anybody else, I think there's a little more of a chance that there's something odd about it that you missed that's unique to your group. But you know, I think kind of the best of both worlds is to improv it, write it up, and then have out of groups test it. But your scheduling doesn't always allow for that. Right. And your publisher doesn't even necessarily have that as a resource. So, you know, before you start planning that other people will do work, you should get their uh, buy-in. That's my yes. theory. Um, but I, I think uh, overall, 
that unless you make the mistake of trying to make other players replicate what your players did, that overall, if you improv and then write up, you will have something that has more options because you saw not only the options that your players did take, but other things that they uh, could have done. Well, I think we've uh, pretty well uh, headed on through the various uh, advantages and disadvantages of this. And so we can... I, th- I think we should write down this segment and then run it from our written version and see if it's different. Yeah, we'll send it out to the testers. Right. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of terror town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pelgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In In Cthulhu Cthulhu City. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time, Patreon backer Fred Kish takes advantage of his Patreon privileges to pose a question to Ken about the game he's currently running, his Porcula Hellenistica game. He wants to know how to run it, he wants to know sources, he wants to know methods, he wants to know 13th Age sources, regular sources. So, Ken, you've taken the uh, standard sort of uh, F20, everything goes, uh, uh, goblins and orcs and elves uh, world, uh, the Dragon Empire that comes with 13th Age, and you've applied your usual dictum, which is, I'd rather set it on Earth. And That's so, right. Uh, where and when on Earth uh, is Porcola Hellenistica set? As uh, the name gives away to the most casual of observers, Poikila Hellenistica is set during the Hellenistic era. Uh, specifically, it's set in 273 BC because I don't want a bunch of Romans. Uh, the, the players wanted to start it in Sicily. Uh, actually one player specifically wanted to start it in Sicily and the other player said, yeah, Sicily sounds fun. Um, and I did not want Romans messing things up. I did not want this to turn into the game of you're fighting Romans or you're fighting Carthaginians for the Romans. I just didn't want some Romans. So I set it in um, as late as I could get it before the Romans show up and start ruining everything in the West. Um, they have now moved themselves from Sicily to Pergamum, so I can go ahead and begin the Punic Wars if I wanted to, but I don't want to yet because that's part of the fun of history is just knowing the Punic Wars are a coming and that gives the players a little bit of a, well, if we don't fix the, what's wrong with the universe, we are going to be all speaking Roman. Um, and uh, that's uncool because it's a barbarian tongue. So you sort of touched on this already, but how did you pitch this to your players? With uh, with my games, by and large, what happens is 
we all sort of talk about the elements that we want to see in the next game. And they had done j- just come out of an unknown armies game that was very, very improv and very, very, you know, uh, loosey goosey and sandboxy. They wanted something more structured. They wanted something where the fights were a bigger thing than they are in unknown armies. Uh, people sort of had a hankering to cast some, uh, fireballs. So they were leaning a little bit towards fantasy. That was one sort of node of the discussion. And I then said, all right, if I'm running a fantasy F20 game, it's going to be 13th age because it's super easy to run. Um, and if I'm going to run F20, it's going to be set on earth. And one of the other bits of things that one of my players had just suggested was how about um, uh, third century BC Sicily, where we have Carthage, Rome, and, and Syracuse all squaring off for power because he's a war gamer and a military history buff. And that, uh, sort of had put a bug in his head. And I said, all right, we can start this game here. And that gives me the Hellenistic era, which is grossly underutilized, uh, for all kinds of things, for fiction, for, um, uh, and certainly for gaming, despite being easily the most ridiculously player character friendly of role playing, uh, of historical role playing settings, certainly in Greek times. So w- what is it that makes it player character friendly? Um, it has everything that you want. There is a assumption of traveling heroes doing things. That's completely normal that if you speak Greek, you can just sort of get into fights from, you know, the almost from the pillars of Heracles to India and beyond. Um, uh, that's completely normal that some guy from one part of the world and some guy from another part of the world get together in a club that is mostly just about who they can stab or who they can hire someone else to stab. It's got sort of a lot of very recognizable things that we don't think of as recognizable until we remember, oh, right, yeah, the Library of Alexandria. That's the Hellenistic period. That's not the classical period. Um, you have uh, the uh, Jason of the Argonauts is the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe of the Hellenistic period. So it's when they're sort of putting the final touches on what we think of as Greek mythology. So you're not, not going to trip over that. You've got uh, – it's it's a much richer world. There's way more treasure. So just – straight up, it's going to be more fun for fighting uh, because you're not, you know, scrambling for your tiny hunk of bronze like in Glorantha. You're out there drowning in silver and gold because Alexander looted the Persian Empire and all that money is still washing around. Um, and you've got exoticism. You've got um, uh, people from outside the Greek world who are showing up and being important. And so if you want to suddenly meet um, uh, uh, Carthaginians, they're there. If you want to meet people from India, they're there. Greeks are all over the place. Um, you've got all of the legendary uh, beasts and monsters that the Greeks made up are now sort of present in their world in theory that they can go find griffins or they can go find uh, unicorns because you've got uh, Catesius writing them all down and sending them back from India. So it's a more exotic uh, world than the sort of archaic or classical periods are, which is good for gaming because you want to be dragging stuff in from all over the place. And in fact, the world Poikila is a world that was made up during the Hellenistic era because they needed a word that meant variegated and piebald and multicolored and dappled. And they didn't have that word in, in classical Greek. So they had to make up a new wor- word for the kind of art and the kind of culture and the kind of life that they were all living in the Hellenistic era. And that's why it's poikila or multicolored or perhaps four colored in my own translation, uh, Hellenistic era. Now, uh, even a super loosey goosey version of F20, like th- 13th page makes a whole bunch of assumptions about what's in the world and then makes rules about them. So do you have elves and goblins and dwarves or you just have different kinds of 
people. Um, most of the things that they players meet are people. I every any player can could have played anything that they wanted. As it was, most people wanted to play uh, humans. We had one character, uh, one player who wanted to play an elf, and uh, it turns out that in Greek mythology there are uh, the Hyperboreans who are immortal and live on a forested island at the top of the world and do nothing but sing hymns to Apollo and hang out in the sunshine all day. And it's like those are elves. So. Uh, he's playing an elf. We're just calling him a Hyperborean. And of course, being players, there's lots of, what do your Hyperborean eyes behold, my friend? And, <laughs> uh, and lots of that, but he's a Hyperborean. He's not an elf, except of course he's an elf. And if you, if I had got players who wanted to play dwarves, they've met dwarves now. Um, there is a Greek myth about the Dactyloi who were created by, um, uh, Rhea. She was digging her fingers into the ground to make people to, to guard Zeus. And, uh, the Dactyloi in Greek mythology are, uh, iron workers. They're doughty warriors and they're made of earth, which is like, well, we are halfway to dwarves already. So I just say that they're a little shorter than normal. And so they're, you know, running around being short. Dactyloi, because they're only finger long. It didn't go all the way down to the hand. But Dactyloi exist in Greek mythology, so you just sort of run around in Greek mythology until you find dwarves, and now we have dwarves. So if a player wanted to play a dwarf, I could have just started out by saying, you're a Dactylus. Right. And if they happen to like beer, well, that makes sense. That certain, everyone likes beer. Who doesn't like beer? Right. Um, so uh, in 13th Age, you get to uh, each player gets to pick a one unique thing. Uh, are there particular uh, standout one unique things among your group? Um, one of the players is playing the occultist because it is <laughs> as though that character class were written for him uh, being uh, annoying and uh, special rules cases and unique. <laughs> uh, and so his unique thing is that he's uh, the occultist, which in our game, it means that he's a servant of the fates, which is why he can re-knit the, the web of fate all the time. Um, I have a character who is a reincarnation of Alexander the Great soothsayer aristander and so uh, he's he's a bard which in uh, the greek uh, world is an orphic herald uh, he goes he's a member of the orphic cult and uh, of the cult of orpheus and he goes around um uh, solving things for for people at for for a cost and then he's also the incarnation of alexander the great soothsayer so that's uh a, a one unique thing i have another uh one of my players um is playing a character who used to steal stuff for the library of alexandria and she uh went in to meet the bibliocephalion which is the giant mind made up of all the books because when you store all these magic books together they they create a mighty independent computer brain and and so she has met the bibliocephalion and not been eaten by it and that's her one unique thing she's the survivor of the bibliocephalion who got sent out to steal books for the library of alexandria and that's uh th and that's her unique thing um we have uh any number of of, of that sort we have a pl player character who's playing an amazon which is not a one unique thing uh her one unique thing is that she's haunted by the caledonian boar and the caledonian boar of course from greek mythology this giant unkillable boar that is chasing her in her dreams and that's that's her one unique thing so um all of these things things, you know, you just cast them in terms of Greek myth and or Greek uh, history and culture. And then I sort of take all of these things. And it's like, okay, we've got a giant boar. That's probably representative of the pre-Greek uh, mythology that's trying to burst through and mess up the icons. Your usual MO is to uh, let the players sort of uh, explore the world a bit and have the story arc uh, emerge in play. Is that uh, what you did this time? And, and, uh, uh, whether you imposed it or not, what story arc is emerging? Uh, the interesting thing about F20 is that all 
story has to happen in the medium of fights. Certainly in a yeah. game like... Just like a musical, the musical numbers advance the storyline. Right. In, in F20, yes. the fights advance the, the, the plot. Right. This is less true in games that are less tactically optimized. So the farther back you go, if you're playing hardcore OSR, um, and even maybe first edition AD&D, you could get away with never doing that because player character abilities are not all optimized towards fighting the way that they are in, say, third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition, uh, and, uh, 13th age, because a player buys a bunch of feats and they buy a bunch of things and all of those things that they've bought are about surviving a fight. And if I then do my sort of loosey goosey, well, maybe you'll fight, maybe you won't fight. Maybe you can sneak around. Maybe you'll just talk. Then those characters are wasted. They put all that effort into building that character for no reason. So I have to drop my information in the form of fights, which is sort of an interesting shift for me. But yes, as they have been fighting bad guys, the story has emerged. I had sort of a pre-story because one of the great things about the one unique thing is once they've all come up with their one unique thing, you can say what one story might link all of these one unique things. And that was, as I intimated, the story of the previous gods being mad that the Greek gods have sort of taken over and trying to overthrow them. And so... Uh, that arc, as the player characters discover what's happening, they have just gotten to Troy, and uh, the character who's playing the Aristander reincarnation is sort of be- had, he's been having visions the whole time, which he can't make sense out of, and uh, by any number of different methodologies, they've now sort of come together to the truth that, oh, Alexander the Great was not just messing around, he was deliberately establishing this world where the icons would be supreme, and now, because his empire has fallen apart, maybe so has that uh that that cosmo that cosmos that he built, and maybe that's a problem, and maybe it's a problemtunity right now they're assuming it's a problem because they're good people mostly, but you know who knows uh so far <laughs> there have been at least two characters who said, "But I might you know be able to talk to these titans, right I mean they don't hate me it's like well no, no, they don't." So there is, there's always that possibility where my player group as a whole does a heel turn and starts working for the bad guys, which is always fun. So yes, they'll clash alongside the Titans. Exactly. Clash with the Titans, not with the Titans. Right. Uh, now, uh, uh, presumably your icons then are the, the Greek gods. Yeah. The, the icons are the Greek gods, um, the 12 Olympians, which is a looser character, uh, category, even in the Alexandrian era, uh, the Hellenistic era than it is, uh, than we think of it being. I mean, we look on, you know, online or we look in our big, beautiful copy of Dolera or Bullfinch and it's like, here are the 12 Olympians, these 12 gods. But if you look at the actual practices of worship, Heracles is worshipped more than about half of them already. Alexander, you know, said, hey, I'm a god. If you actually count them up, Hades isn't anywhere visible, but we know he's important because he's Zeus's brother, for God's sake. So exactly which 12 are the 12 icons I'm leaving up to the players. And it's, you know, they have relationships with mostly the... Uh, the, the Greek gods as we recognize, although the characters, the reincarnation of Aristander has a relationship with the divine Alexander as an icon. And I think two of them have relationships with Heracles, who is not one of the, you know, sort of canonical 12 and the member of the mystery cult of Samothrace, which is a real mystery cult and actually worshiped the great old ones, 
that was what it is. They worship the Megaloi Theoi, the uh, the great gods who are unknown in in real history, and that's who he worships. So he's got a relationship with them. And are the Megaloi Theoi the oldest versions of Zeus, or are they primordial gods that? are on the side of the Titans trying to overwhelm them. And we don't know because that's a mystery in the game. So uh, which books did you reach for uh, from your uh, Hellenistic uh, history section of your library? Um, There's a uh, sort of an overview. I mean, I knew the history pretty cold. Um, One of the really, really nice advantages of Hellenistic history is that we don't actually have a lot of it. Uh, The classical historians or the historians in the Hellenistic era, by and large, if they wrote their histories, the people who came after them didn't copy them down because they were like, well, do I write a copy of the life of Alexander or a copy of the life of a bunch of jerks who thought they were Alexander? Well, that's easy. I'm going to write a copy of the life of Alexander. So the histories of this period, a lot of them are just reconstructed by looking at the coins and saying, oh, the king changed. Look at that. Um, so uh, the history is, is a little more open what there is of it, I pretty much know, uh, just because I've always been interested in it. Um, you can look at Michael Grant's uh, From Alexander to Cleopatra or Peter Green's From Alexander to Actium. Both are pretty good overviews, um, obviously, your your internets. But the book that I sort of found myself first going for was a book called Hellenistic Science and Culture in the Last Three Centuries B.C. by a, a guy named George Sarton. And this is a book from ancient times. Dover uh, published it. It was originally written in, I think, um, uh, 1959. But it's a, an overview of all the science, uh, all the art, all the everything that I didn't have memorized. And it provides you uh, by no means a, you know, uh, an up to date version of the history. But it lets you sort of set down some parameters and say, oh, look, there's these weird social clubs called the Aranoi, which just uh, hang out and, and, you know, maybe fought monsters. We don't know. Um, and then uh, there's um, a, a book about the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, which I forget the name of. It's called something really brilliant, like the seven wonders, um, which has sort of as much archaeological information as we have about the seven wonders, because the other reason that I picked 273 BC is all seven wonders exist. Um, uh, and I sort of wanted that to be a thematic point of the game that these sort of giant larger than life things are occurring all around you. And this are the seven wonders. And that only happens from 282 BC when, uh, the lighthouse at Pharos is completed. Uh, the Colossus of Rhodes falls down in 226 BC. So you really kind of have about a 60 year window if you want the seven wonders to be part of your, um, uh, part of your jam. And so finally, uh, what do you think is uh, apt to happen the next time you run? Uh, we just finished a insanely hard fight uh, out of one of the uh, 13th Age battle scene books, which, by the way, 13th Age stuff is so easy to just cannibalize for this stuff because uh, uh, there, there's already a bunch of tree monsters, which are, can all be dryads, good or bad, a uh, bunch of water monsters, which can all be naiads or they can be um, oceanids, uh, all good or bad. Um, all of the Greek monsters are in there. So you've got your chimeras, you've got your medusas, you've got your griffins, you've got all of the things from Greek myth. And most of the things that um, uh, are sort of standard D&D monsters, you can spend just a little bit of thinking and say, all right, um, the Sawagin are basically deep ones, just like they always were, but they're tritons. They're these sort of merfolk that exist, and maybe they worship Poseidon, and maybe they don't. So now we have tritons that come up. You can you can recast uh, the the F twenty monster slot into the Greek myth- mythology. There's a 
There's an OSR game called Mazes and Minotaurs that's an OSR game that takes the assumption that instead of Poole Anderson, um, uh, all of uh, that uh, Gygax and Arneson had read a bunch of Greek mythology and had watched all of the Ray Harryhausen movies and did their game based on Greek mythology. So you can go to Mazes and Minotaurs and look at the way that the way that Paul Elliott and Olivier Legrand um, uh, did the same sort of retro uh, version of, uh, ancient Greek F20, and you can use that as inspiration. So it's, so it's easy to sort of adapt existing 13th age stuff or existing F20 stuff, uh, to, uh, Greek mythology and the sort of, uh, certainly the Hellenistic anything goes. And if it's weird, it's probably from India, uh, me- mentality that, that they have, uh, going on there. So Ken, uh, like an expert, uh, political handler, you gave a, a brilliant answer to a different question. The question is, what's going to happen next time you play? Oh, right. Uh, next time we play, um, we just got through this uh, horrid... F- ah, that's where it came from. We got the, through this horrific fight uh, from one of the battle scenes that the player characters survived by the skin of their teeth and by a, a great deal of, of rules um, uh, 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 lawyering, which was... It turns out they were right, but it was... It, they have never needed to go uh, to, to go to the, the dread uh, <laughs> sort of rules lawyering before. So, in a way, we're, we're, getting, a, we're getting a real F-20 feel. But the, um, uh, but the next bit is going to be a sort of more standard Ken Height style bit. And that's going to be the, 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 they're, they're in Troy now. They're in Ilion. They're going to go down to Pergamon because they finally have to give one of the two Hydra heads they've been carrying around this whole time to the library at Pergamon, which of course is the rival of the library of Alexandria. So Pergamon is going to have all manner of great fun and adventure for them, but it's going to be in the sort of, uh, sandboxy urban encounter way that I'm, um, uh, more used to running and playing, and we're going to see if we can make some story emerge out of that. And worst case scenario, I've got a couple of dungeons that can be just around the corner from Bergamon, and it's like, well, we'd love to help you out, but first go clear out that, you know, giant pile of harpies. Right. Well, uh, when uh, harpies are coming our way, it's time for us to flee uh, through the convenient anti-harpy shield provided by this coming commercial and see what lies beyond on the vast plain of podcast huts. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Walk the red carpet alongside such Patreon backers as Samuel Holly, Steve Sigety, Andrew Cowie, Drew Eichholz, and Ruth Tillman. 
the whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the feeling of something under our shoes welcomes us once more to the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut today, it is black and white pretty much there, maybe a little bit of Technicolor, because we are in the classic studio era, uh, and we are talking about the guy who isn't the guy, but he's still that guy, or the lady who isn't the lady, but is still kind of the lady. We're talking about character actors. We're talking about the guys who are maybe not the lead and probably not the villain, but they're still there and we still love them. Character actors in the studio era. Robin, are we, are we allowing the fifties to count as the studio era for this purpose? Uh, some of the people on my list, uh, go into the fifties and, uh, one of them is even in an episode of Classic Trek. So there you uh, go. I'll bet. Um, uh, I'll bet I beat you to it. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's because uh, people lived longer than the classic studio period did, obviously, and a lot of the great character actors of the uh, studio period went on to do a lot of uh, guest star work on uh, TV. So uh, one of the reasons that I think it is useful to think about character actors for uh, us here in this podcast is that they are uh, just as they were useful shorthand uh, in films. Uh, because they uh, they were contract players, they worked uh, usually with one studio, and like the big stars, could be loaned out to other studios. But uh, there were uh, fewer people playing supporting roles in those years, and they were uh, they worked a lot more. Uh, so you got to have a much thicker uh, uh, resume, and uh, even more than today, character actors then were used sort of as uh, semiotic storytelling devices. So that if a particular character actor showed up you knew who he was already and that didn't require a lot of additional exposition for you to establish who the character was. It's just, Oh, it's for example, Eugene Pallett. <laughs> so Eugene Pallett is a, a burly gravel voiced uh, uh, actor uh, who usually played uh, sort of uh, put upon uh, but sly sort of uh, authority figures. So uh, he is in uh, My Man Godfrey. That's sort of the classic Eugene Pallet role, and he's a tycoon in a screwball comedy. He's the, the father figure, the patriarch, and uh, he's uh, has a clear eye on what's going on, but he has no control on the bat- madness around him. He's a, he's a good guy. He's not a stern, uh, you know, forbidding father figure, but he needs the sort of the help of the protagonist, uh, in, in that one and in a lot of other ones in order to have order brought to his uh, life. He's in The Lady Eve. He's in The Ghost Goes West. He's, he's also, Friar Tuck uh, in Adventures of Robin Hood. Yes, exactly. I was just about to say, he's also one of the great Friar Tucks in Adventures of Robin Hood. And so uh, if, for example, as a GM, you have a character who you kind of base on Eugene Paulette, you can just provide a picture of uh, him to your players and go, oh, he looks like this. And because if you're player is a big fan of older movies, uh, they will usually know the semiotic meaning of that character, and they will know a bunch of different roles that they played, whereas if you take a, a contemporary character actor, your players, uh, whether they're big fans of uh, classic titles or not, will may just lock into a particular role, right? Often, oh, well, that's the Falcon from the Captain America movies, or, or you know, whatever, whereas... Uh, a player who doesn't know the old movies will just see the Eugene Paletteness of Eugene Pallette without necessarily getting the references and still know because he's so specific and so visual what they need to know about that character, especially if you can kind of do the gravelly voice. So Ken, what's your uh, uh, favorite 
uh, character actor you want to mention first? Um, well, I actually could have sworn that you were going to start us off with uh, Walter Brennan. We we talk about Walter Brennan so much yeah. that I was going to take him as red. And I wanted to sort of start off by saying that depending on your definition of character actors, you can say, say Raymond Burr is a character actor because until he becomes a TV leading man, that's kind of what he was or Angela Lansbury uh, or George Sanders, who was one of my favorite actors of all time or Agnes Moorhead. But I think all of those are sort of a little too famous maybe to count in the category we're talking. I, I reserve the right to, to come back to them if we need to. Right. Again, the the one hut we never want to go into is the semantics hut. Right. Um, and so, for my purposes, uh, it's okay if you're famous, but probably if you're in a bunch of movies as the lead, uh, you're disqualified from my list. So, right. George Sanders, who is a great character actor in a lot of things and is instantly recognizable for all of his qualities... Also was uh, the lead in a whole bunch of movies. Yeah, so I would... and he was the main villain in a bunch of movies also, which sort of kind of half disqualifies him on the other side. Although character actors can play the villain more easily, I think, that they can play the lead. Right, just and Raymond Burr also right, yeah. was usually a, a, a heel in most of his roles until right. he became... Uh, Perry Mason. But since uh, Walter Brennan is literally grandfathered out, um, I'm going to say Elisha Cook Jr., who I knew you were going to say anyway. And yes, Elisha I, Cook... I tipped my hand on that one. Uh, yeah, you did, but you, I knew it was going to happen unless you picked him first. Um, he's the he, he's the, the Kobe of... Um, uh, in the all-star of character actors. Um, uh, the, the, if you didn't... If someone else got MJ, you go for uh, uh, the Elisha Cook Jr. He is, of course, famously the Wilmer in uh, the Maltese Falcon... Uh, um, the sort of ineffectual gunsel who gets pushed around and doesn't want to take it, but he's Elisha Cook Jr. and there's nothing he can do about it. And he's cast a little bit against type on, of course, Star Trek, where he plays a lawyer, Samuel T. Cogley, um, who is useful and avuncular and helpful, even though he still doesn't like any of this stuff that's going on around him. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that's sort of the, uh, and I, I, I don't think that there is a picture. I don't know if, if when they were taking all of his publicity stills, they said, um, uh, Hey, Elisha, there's a spider on you or what, but he always has that sort of ah! look to him in his pictures. And, uh, he's, he's a great guy to sort of, he's not quite comic relief, but he's like, if there has to be a threat structurally, who isn't going to be a threat really, that's kind of what Elisha Cook does. Is he's the put upon little man. Yeah. Uh, He's in the big sleep as well, and that that uh, uh, very much the sort of sacrificial little man. Uh, is a I think the alt, his most Elisha Cookie role is in Kubrick's The Killing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, he's just um uh, he's he's so Elisha Cookie in that it's it's like concentrated Elisha Cook in The Killing. Yes, uh, <laughs> and he's in Rosemary's Baby as well. And he's gunned down in Shane. He's um, actually uh, plays a, a a somewhat useful obstacle in the sense that he's against um, uh, Jack Palance, but he's still um, a whiner. Yes, his his <laughs> ratio of uh, roles to getting killed in roles is probably uh, the highest of anyone we're going to mention. Uh, someone who probably doesn't get killed in any of her roles is Eve Arden, uh, oh. who's sort of the quintessential. Uh, she's the prototypical sassy confidant of the the leading lady. Right. Um, she's ever. She's the. She is the um, Joan Cusack of the golden age of Hollywood. Yes. Uh, and often she's sort of the uh, as as the sassy friend often is. She's sort of the Greek chorus character who supplies the good advice that the leading character does not go ahead and take. Uh, most famously in Mildred Pierce, 
she's also in Anatomy of a Murder, and uh, she shows up in Greece as uh, 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 later on she has moved more into sort of a, an authority figure role. Um, I'm gonna my own pr- uh, favorite sort of second banana is maybe a little bit late for the classic era, but it's Anne Miller, who is the best friend who is so much better and more interesting than the main character that you can't even believe that the movie's not about her. And I think I fell in love with her completely in Kiss Me Kate, where she plays the Bianca character. Um, but she does that in like all of these uh, sort of classic musicals. They've starred, you know, Judy Garland or someone who's totally uh, not particularly interesting. And then Ann Miller will show up and you'll be like, hello, now we got a movie. Um, I, I, I don't know if that makes her a character actor or or what, but she's never the sort of main character in the movies she's always sort of the you know uh best friend second uh second leads girlfriend type character and i and i find her just really compelling and i kind of wish that she'd been in more stuff uh yeah and she uh speaking of character actors who have long careers she's in mulholland drive yeah because uh david lynch uh, loves old hollywood and that's about old hollywood yes um and i think she did actually get some leads in some musicals and stuff but they were uh you know she's the most famous thing she's in, she's sort of the female Donald O'Connor. She's the, right, yeah. the, the second dancing and singing uh, character. Well, you already mentioned Elisha Cook Jr., so I'm going to skip ahead to sort of the prototypical uh, family matriarch character uh, would be often played by Jane Darwell, most famously in The Grapes of Wrath, where she's Ma Jode. Uh, she's also in uh, The Oxbow Incident, and uh, she's, uh, uh, again, makes it to the color era. Well, the whole Hollywood era is the color era, but... Uh, a later role is in Mary Poppins. And so uh, if you want uh, someone uh, uh, to be the sort of uh, sympathetic, uh, perhaps worn down by life, uh, uh, older lady who uh, knows something that your characters uh, need to discover, you can hold up a picture of uh, Jane Darwell. And uh, her performance in Grapes of Wrath is, uh, you know, one of the great performances of all time. On the category of you can hold the guy up and you know everything about him, even if you've never seen a movie, Robert Morley. Yeah. Who is, um, if you, uh, so I, you, you can imagine them saying, can we get Charles Lawton? No. Can we get Sidney Greenstreet? No. Okay. Robert Morley, come on down. Yeah. Um, he's sort of, uh, blustering, um, uh, sort of pompous, sort of, but off, often he has the sort of, um, uh, atmosphere of, of play that, uh, that especially Sydney Greenstreet has. And of course, my classic, uh, uh, Robert Morley role is in Beat the Devil, where he's one of the somewhat incompetent con artists, uh, who's, uh, tangled up there with, uh, a Bogart. Um, and he's sort of this, you know, magnificent presence of, almost toppling over into incompetence, but it's always one ahead of our hero just because of unearned, um, uh, 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 unearned points. And he just sort of rolls into that so well, but he's also of course in the African queen, uh, as a missionary again, playing opposite, uh, bogey and sort of in, in that way, he's, uh, his sort of, um, uh, pompousness makes him a little bit, uh, isolated from the setting. And that's sort of what you wanted in, in for Robert Morley there, but he's always great for sort of a windbag uh, character or a, or an imperious character who's sort of in your way and you can't easily move him. Sort of kind of the opposite of Elisha Cook in a way. Yes, in the- he's, he's one of the critics on Vincent Price's murder list in uh, Theater of Blood. And that's, that's the perfect role for him. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit more sort of ineffectual than Sidney Greenstreet, right? Sidney Greenstreet always plays the, the guy who really knows what's going on, whereas uh, the Robert Morley character is more likely to be something of a blusterer. You can't talk about 
classic character actors without talking about people who've been in a lot of westerns and it's sort of hard to pick the right sort of uh wizened mug uh so i'm going to go with woody strode uh mm. who's uh, an african-american actor who uh is not only in the professionals and the man who shot liberty valance but he's also the uh the gladiator in spartacus and uh he's one of these uh people who just with his presence uh brings uh so much to the role so it's not uh uh, you know, and, and, you know, as a, as a black actor in that era, uh, he did not have the opportunities that a lot of other people had for juicy roles, but he has this great sort of laconic presence. And again, he's someone who you hold up a photo of this guy and he looks like, uh, someone who's really lived and is tough and can be the, uh, sort of sympathetic antagonist in your game or the, uh, you know, the, the tough veteran who's uh who knows the ways of the dungeon or, or what have you but he's uh, another really great presence so it's always really fabulous to see in a film and one of the things about woody strode is because he was an athlete he has a good physical carriage uh in his parts and you, you can really believe that he is a uh, badass in a way that you can't necessarily believe of some of these people um uh that, that he's got it going on and uh it, it you look for the the character actors who come out of football instead of the character actors who come out of you know regional theater, and it's sort of two sort of sets of character actors. Um, the uh, the opposite of Woody Strode in many ways, Charles Lane, who has been in probably a million movies, but is most famous in I think probably It's a Wonderful Life, where he plays the guy who's the assistant to Mister Potter, but he's also um, uh, I think he's he's probably in um, uh, Citizen Kane, isn't he? One of like the librarian or something in Citizen Kane, but. He, He's in a million movies. Yeah, so he's sort of an, an old, the older sort of. Uh, when you hold him up, he's got glasses and he's he's bald and got white hair, and he's, uh, you know, your sort of uh, authority figure. He did uh, three hundred and sixty-five movies and TV shows. His type was so uh, absolutely uh, necessary. So he's sort of your, you know, he's you get to play your older lawyer or accountant or or, or what have. Sort of a well-meaning straight so man type guy. Yeah. Usually, sometimes he's a problem, but, but usually, I mean, even in uh, even when he's a bad guy, like he is in It's a Wonderful Life, he's a bad guy who knows what's going on and doesn't want any part of this nonsense. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So he's sort of the the sober image of respectable society, and whether respectable society is good or bad depends on. Yeah. The I don't think he was in Citizen Kane, but still, he could have been. He could have been one of the librarians in Citizen Kane. You can't prove he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, you you may you may be conflating him. With I Everett may be, Sloan. in fact, in front conflating him with Everett Sloan, which is kind of the point of having a character actor, I guess. Exactly. Well, you know, when Everett Sloan wasn't available, so was Charles Lane, and vice versa. Um, one type we haven't mentioned yet is the sort of uh, the oily, sort of somewhat uh, sinister, weaselly authority figure, and that's where we get to Louis Calhoun, who is sort of the, he's the guy who funds the heist in Asphalt Jungle. Uh, he's a uh, foil for Groucho in Duck Soup. He's in Notorious. He's even in Annie Get Your Gun. And so he's uh, sort of the anti-Charles Lane in that he is the epitome of phony authority, of the, the guy who's uh, a, a little uh, uh, less smart and a little less in control than he likes to think he is. Speaking of um, uh, Weasley bad guys, 
Um, I'm going to say that, uh, Dan Duryea should get a shout out again, kind of on that Raymond Burr bubble, but because he didn't get to go play Ironside, people don't recognize him. Um, but he's often, uh, sort of the Weasley buddy of the main villain. And when he is the main villain, usually in a B picture, he is still just Weasley and horrible. And, uh, he, he's also had a good face for Westerns because he sort of looked like someone had already beaten him up with a gun butt. So, um, uh, he shows yeah, up. So he's, he's sort of the poor man's Richard Widmark. Yeah. That's, that's exactly Dan Duryea. But I love his, but I, I love his screen presence because it's just so, so he's sort of, you know, if Steve Buscemi could win a gunfight, he'd be Dan Duryea. That's kind of uh, where where you're going in that direction. And uh, and weirdly, although he mostly played uh, sort of heavies and weasels in westerns, he started out as a song and dance. Player. Yeah, he's very very grimo worm tonguey. If you're looking for sort of the 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 guy who's always going to make a situation worse, that's Dan Duryea. Right. Uh, well, I we could go on. <laughs> we could forever. And and if asked by our Patreon backers, could return to this. Uh, but anyway, that's an example of uh, not only uh, some uh, great people whose work you should uh, uh, investigate, but also uh, a convenient source of props for your next uh, uh, game, pretty much in any era or genre, because these people jumped around from different genres. So check out your uh, nearest source of classic uh, Hollywood uh, movies, and we will uh, check out uh, what's beyond this commercial. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we've once more stepped into proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our trusted chrono agent back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time, Patreon backer Rich Rinallo uh, has a, uh, a question where I think as soon as you see this, you know that uh, Ken's uh, uh, vodka clutching hand must be involved in this in some way, because... In 1893, uh, President Grover Cleveland uh, underwent secret nautical surgery. And uh, the fact that this had to be kept secret can't just be because back in the day, the president was a big deal. And that was in an era where, you know, you didn't know how many Diet Cokes he drank each day. And you didn't get a daily readout of all of the nonsense and craziness going on in the Cleveland White House, probably because there wasn't Because there much. was none. He was a, he was a sober, uh, solid bourgeois president for a sober, solid bourgeois Tom. Uh, so much so that, uh, you know, his biggest, this big scandal he needed to hide from the nation was that he got mouth cancer. Right. 
<laughs> well, he, he he leaned into his previous uh, scandal, which was that he'd uh, had a child out of wedlock and that he had been um, uh, he'd paid another guy to fight for him in the Civil War rather than uh, go to the draft. And so he was pilloried as an adulterous draft dodger uh, when he uh, ran for president. And they used to say, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? And uh, at his rallies and after he won, uh, his supporters would respond, gone to the White House. Ha ha ha. Right. And that was actually as dirty as it got in Grover Cleveland time the uh that election was was very hard fought the 1888 election was very hard fought but by the election we're talking about here the 1892 election people were just sort of like yeah we're sick of having this fight between Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland and we're going to give it to Grover Cleveland again because we like him uh so anyway uh Grover Cleveland uh, goes to the doctor the doctor looks at the roof of his mouth he sees something there and he says it's a bad looking tenant and I would have it evicted immediately uh, but because the fear is that uh the thought that the uh, uh, president could have uh, cancer, which had uh, even more stigma and fear attached to it than it does today, uh, could have like collapsed the stock market or something. And it was well, it the was stock bad. market was already in the process of collapsing. It could have caused utter economic panic. Right. So we don't want that. So the answer is, where do you put the president when you want to have a um, an operation on him? And this is 1893 medicine. This is not 1993 medicine. It's not your fancy medicine. Right. So they say, let's do this on a boat where no one will notice it. And Ken, presumably, this is where you and your time machine came in. Well, um, if you asked an oral surgeon now, a proper oral surgeon, would you like to spend uh, only 90 minutes on a boat removing a mouth cancer from the president of the United States going in through the mouth so you can't disarrange his mustache. Uh, that yeah, oral the, surgeon. The, the, the other important <laughs> thing is the mustache preservation was a hundred percent priority here. That right. That, because that would have let people know there was something hinky going on if he'd shown up with his mustache shaved. That would be so, the end of the American economy. Some sort of yes. mustache uh, disarrangement. The mustache crisis it would have been instead of just the panic of 1893, which is what it was, uh, the mustache panic. But uh, there was no mustache panic because the oral surgeon went in. But an oral surgeon now would say, well, that would take several hours and you'd want all of these other safeguards. And they said, what if you could only use nitrous oxide and ether and uh, you had to use hand saws to do it? And they would say, well, you can't do it. It's impossible. It yeah, was done but, in 90 but, but minutes, ladies we'll and gentlemen. have a level surface. Right. Yes. No, you would we're on a them. moving yacht yeah. <laughs> off the shore of um, uh, Long Island, sailing from Long Island to Boston. Um, you would uh, you would uh, you would be uh, on a boat. And oh, by the way, you also have to do it under complete secrecy because we can't let any information get out. No one would do it now. It would be an impossible operation now. It was done then in not uh, a lot of yacht based oral surgery. These days. Very little yacht dentistry, weirdly, um, although there's a full uh, surgical theater on Air Force One. So if they need to, you know, go in and start removing things from the president. They're ready to do it. Um, and they just can't go in through the hair today. No, they can't do that because it's the same thing, really. Uh, and and it's impenetrable. <laughs> right. Well, there's two reasons. Um, it's made of adamantium. Uh, the uh, where the hell were we? All right. Um, you you can't go. So, where where we were was uh, where 1893 on the yacht Oneida. Um, where I come in first of all is just making sure that. That 90 minutes goes perfectly. And, uh, the reason it went perfectly is because literally everything went right. And the reason it literally everything went right is you got to keep redoing it until everything went right. Now I'm as big a fan of presidential yachts as the next guy, but that was a long assignment. Um, uh, making sure that everything, uh, worked out 
out well for, for Grover Cleveland. Um, the importance of preventing the utter collapse of, uh, the American economy in 1893 and, uh, allowing red revolution led by crazy, um, uh, visionary weirdos in, into the halls of power. Perhaps as important then as it is any other time. So I take it you had to hit the rewind, but there was sort of a, uh, a Groundhog Day element to this. There was part? very much a Groundhog Day element. We sort of had to keep going through until the dentist was uh, so good at his job um, that he could do it perfectly. It was it was very much a Groundhog Day. A practice makes perfect, and a time machine makes practice. Now, uh, was this just the the extent of your rewind? Was uh, training the oral surgeon, or were you uh, under attack by other chrono forces? Uh, this one is not an other chrono forces thing. There was a, a possibility that my, hid- my, my hidden time enemies were involved in Coxie's army, which was a weird collection of financial theorists and cowboys and uh, people who believed in a magical androgynous marriage and bicycle enthusiasts and sort of, you know, <laughs> it, it's like if you sort of shook Twitter hard and everyone who fell onto the left side got to have a march. That's what Coxie's march was. Um, but it was it was very strange and it sort of fell apart because uh, they all started sleeping with each other instead of uh, continuing the march, which is probably the best result anyone could have had. But uh, I was worried that my my shadowy time enemies had hidden themselves in there because if there's one place that time guys can go where you can't find them, it's collections of weirdos. And believe me, I know that. Right. And so this is also happening in, in 1893. Yeah, this is happening in 1893 as well because of the, um, uh, be, because of the, uh, economic crisis, uh, that's going on. The, 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 the panic of 1893, um, uh, and, uh, the, the silver act, um, uh, that, uh, people, um, wanted to, uh, repeal so that you could freely coin silver and basically inflate the economy out of its, uh, out of its problem. So th- they were sort of the threat in the background that if you failed to enable the surgery to take place, that they would have grown as a movement and, and presumably even, you know, no amount of sleeping together would have prevented them from taking over had Cleveland lost his mustache. Right. And if Cleveland had lost his mustache and the economy had uh, completely gone to smash. And again, the panic of 1893, we call it a panic because that's the term. That was a depression. That was a full blown great depression type situation. We were in as parlous a situation then economically as we've ever been as a country. And it wouldn't have taken very much. His vice president, um, uh, who would have, uh, you know, taken over Adlai Stevenson, not the same as the ineffectual bum of the month that Dwight Eisenhower beat twice, but the other Adlai Stevenson uh, was a silverite uh, who had been put on to balance the ticket and who, while being, you know, the bigger man about it, said that he was adjacent to power. <laughs> that he was not part of any of uh, Cleveland's uh, decisions as president. Uh, but had he been, right. you know, well, that, that's in charge. Well, that's a somewhat nicer uh, description of the vice presidency than Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> yes. Or, or than uh, John Nance Garner's um, uh, description that it's not worth a bucket of warm something uh, often described as spit <laughs> <laughs> yes but perhaps not technically accurate um so uh in in the episode of ken's time machine uh the whole ground dog thing thing is there an, an obstacle with uh catches you up each time um well i mean part of the obstacle is you have to keep explaining it to the uh to, to the dentists and things right um who i am and why i get to be there uh, it turns out um that's who brings the nitrous is me. So it's a slight variation on my previous policy of getting everyone drunk. You get everyone nitrous and then, Hey, why not go back in time, get better at dentistry, fix the president. It's great fun. Um, that causes its own problems in a way. 
you know, if you wanted to say that I was kind of my own obstacle uh, in that, because, you know, time machines and nitrous, they don't mix kids. Don't do that. Uh, also, you wind up um, uh, if you if you put a Knox injector onto your time machine, you wind up in the Cretaceous period. And uh, while oral surgery does solve dinosaurs, it does not solve them as rapidly as you might wish. So is the nitrous why you let the story slip to uh, reporter E.J. Edwards? Uh, two months later, um, it is possible that at some point, uh, my normally uh, perfect uh, veil out technique uh, did in fact uh, end. Uh, Grover Cleveland was very personally disappointed that that doctor would violate his Hippocratic uh, oath of not ratting out the president's mustache. But yeah, it was because you know you've, you've got a, a, a team of like nine or, or seven or nine doctors to keep track of. I can't even tr- keep track of them now. That's how how much it is. Um, and you know one you, one guy gets his memories back, and then the whole situation becomes a thing. Right. Because the, so so it leaked to this journalist Edwards who. Uh, uh, printed the story and was uh, mercilessly smeared yeah. by the president himself in, you know, the only time that the president has ever attacked the media and claimed that something true was false for political gain. But in this case, it was for the mustache. Right. He was defending his mustache. Right. So it took 24 years later, because uh, obviously we know about this now, and, and Rich Ranallo knows about this now. Yeah. And uh, he knows about that because uh, one of the surviving doctors, 24 years later, uh, his name was Dr. William Williams keen uh finally broke the story and that's uh that's why we know about it but he did leave out uh the uh nitrous guy with the mysterious accent he did in fact leave that out and for that you know he has my eternal gratitude also he needed a hookup for nitrous so there you go there we go uh well with that uh, question answered i think we can uh, declare another uh podcast episode successfully completed and uh hop in your time machine and uh deal with that uh, little extra problem with the nitrous tanks in the Cretaceous. Yes. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep the nitrous flowing alongside such patrons as... Daniel Markwig. Derek McMullen. Frank Gang. Hyperlexic. And Jason Denon. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include wielding fennel without proper church authority. And this bicycle does not make toast. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>